0: cheerleaders are often asked to strip in front of directors and managers, usually down to their underwear or into a tiny bikini. Something revealing to prove their dieting and hitting the gym every day. In the cheerleading business, this is called being calendar ready. As a practice, it's expected. Cheerleaders know when they're hired that they'll have to strip down in front of managers. What they don't expect is for their supervisors to use it as a weapon. Kristen Ann Ware filed a lawsuit against the Miami Dolphin cheer team after she was told to get into a bikini during an interview. She had already been with the Dolphins for two seasons, and she went into her annual review expecting to talk about new dance moves and choreography. Instead, the director asked Kristen about her religious beliefs. Let's talk about your vow to wait for marriage. Something the interviewer couldn't say outright was how bad a vow of celibacy would be for Christian's popularity. Wealthy fans fantasize about the possibility of hooking up with the cheerleaders. Some men pay top dollar for VIP boxes and suites specifically to flirt with cheerleaders. Some teams, like the Redskins, have been accused of asking their cheerleaders to wear skimpier outfits whenever they entertain VIP suite holders in private parties. But the director for the Dolphins didn't need to say any of this to Christian. Instead, they told her to strip down. Even though it was her third season and they knew damn well she was in amazing shape, they singled her out, telling her to take off her clothes to prove she was calendar ready. In interviews, Kristen says her knees were shaking. Her heart was pounding. She felt degraded. While she was getting changed, she looked in the mirror, telling herself, Christian, you can leave. You can walk right now. This isn't right. But she didn't walk out. Instead, she smiled and posed for her managers. Because Kristen had been told over and over she was replaceable. That thousands of attractive women were lined up to take her job if she left. That being eye candy was her sole purpose on the team, and any bimbo could fill her role. That's one of the unavoidable insults that pop up on social media, especially when cheerleaders try to sue for employee rights. If they want more money to dance, there's a poll in a club I know. I don't get why women want to be bimbo cheerleaders in the first place. Oh, look, the ball buddies are protesting again. Those are actual quotes from Twitter, by the way. But Kristen didn't want to discuss her religious beliefs. She wasn't just a dumb bimbo. Kristen holds a bachelor's degree in marine sciences and teaches wilderness therapy. And while her employment with the Dolphins might have been up for negotiation, her faith wasn't, which is why she ultimately left the team. You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self empowerment and all the myths, lies, and misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then we use science and history to bust those myths and re engineer a better you. I'm your host, Todd Laments, the
1: extrovert. And I'm the writer, researcher, and introvert, Joe Anthony, whose job it is to dig through the outer layer of no duh on the internet.
0: The first pro cheerleaders were the dancers for the 1954 Baltimore Colts. If you look at old photos, the dancers were usually wearing knee-length skirts and heavy sweaters, or cardigans that covered them from neck to wrist. Then in the late 60s, the Dallas Cowboys decided to rebrand their own cheerleaders to give them sexier outfits, show more cleavage, and choreograph more sexually suggestive dances. To transform the girl-next-door college grad and image into, well... Bimbos. But who's smarter statistically? The, quote, bimbos on the field or the people in the stands? What about other bimbo professions? Myth one. Cheerleaders. They're paid to shake their moneymakers on the field. But how do they make money once they're off the field? What kind of braining professions are these women going into? Myth two. What about romance writers? If you're smart, you'll write about politics or economics, right? What if you can't hack it as a real writer? You're demoted to bimbo books. Myth three, what about other classic bimbo jobs like flight attendants or fitness instructors or jobs that literally rely on looking pretty like models? We're going to get into our myths, but first I want to ask Joe about the brainy statistics behind cheerleaders.
1: So not to start off with a Zoolander quote, but this is the podcast for really, really
0: ridiculously good-looking people. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, this is why I'm gonna take credit for this. Joe Joe gets most of the ideas, but this one I got. This one I called him up, and the reason this came up to me was I was in a a, a yoga studio in downtown Portland I went to where I first started practicing yoga. This was about seven years ago. And two of the women there were were former blazer dancers and I got to know them very really well as friends we were in classes together, and we'd all go out for, for drinks or dinner or whatever. Both of them were PhDs, and it just totally <laughs> changed my mind. You know what I mean? Right. And they, they were as proud of that they used to be blazer dancers as they were of their education.
1: That's that's what I've been finding when we started researching this is I found a lot of they do the cheerleading for pride and and for the prestige that it brings and then the rest of their life generally looks amazing like <laughs> we're we're really gonna get into like where they go and and what they do but yeah this this really you you hooked me on the idea of busting the myths that all of these professions are considered bimbos like flight attendants that's like a classic one that's like that's in madmen or like models like that that's the joke in zoolander is everybody who's very good looking is very stupid so, um, yeah, we're so just, th- this is they just, don't,
0: they don't have to be good. They don't have to be smart, right? Like the rest of us.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. The, 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 stereotype is if you're attractive enough, you don't have to have brains, but that's also kind of the joke on us is how long have we had that myth and, and how long do we keep hitting that myth as if it's true? And in reality, which is sort of an excuse to underpay people. So that's, that's the first thing I want to talk about is, um, how much do you think cheerleaders make per game?
0: and joe and i if you've listened if you're one of our regulars you know how much we don't we hate wage theft that's like kind of one of our things (laughs) it's so (laughs) accidentally yeah we hate billionaires and who who don't pay people we hate that we hate it
1: i i think the this i i hate that this show has very slowly taken on an anti-corporate bend although really it's just about Um, the biggest perpetrators of myths are oftentimes the people with the most uh, marketing money. And that's an easy myth to bust. We just look up the numbers Um, and the numbers for the cheerleaders. It's funny. I I initially started with, well, I'm going to have to spend a lot of time on this. I'll have to go team by team, look up what they make, uh, break down what it is per game. Like I actually was, was expecting to have to like figure out their appearances when they are signing things in public, when they're with the trailblazers you know, in a car, like, like how often is it paid time versus yeah. time, Yeah.
0: Promotional time, practice time. You know, you go, you do all kinds of special events. And then also I just think keeping in that kind of shape is almost a full time job, Joe.
1: Absolutely. The, the cost of them, Uh, Being at the gym every day, even if that is just a personal choice, some of it isn't like like some of their clothes aren't some of it is required by their team. So I, I was expecting to have to break this down math wise and then come back to you after a couple hours of doing math it was way easier than that um these gals are very very smart one of the bengals cheerleaders did all this math for me um
0: (laughs) (laughs) she probably did a third of the time you would have taken you too
1: oh yeah i needed a calculator she just did in her head but um yeah like they they divided they were making one to two hundred dollars per game uh they divided it between appearances practices etc and they found out they were making about three dollars an hour And if that sounds like oh it's just the Bengals or oh that's ridiculous, it's not the um the Raiders paid out uh, 1.25 million in a wage theft settlement uh, recently, so it's it's real like it is it is a legit thing. I, I usually we'd string out the major myth like right up to the end of the episode, but can we just start with how smart these gals are? Like you mentioned that the, the two that you met were PhDs, so they're it, they are treated like bimbos but statistically we want to know if they aren't or like it like okay let's start with uh, let's say what is a bimbo uh, mentally is it an iq level or is it an attitude or is it uh, like usually in in pop culture it is zoolander it is like they they have maybe a um a high school degree but it's a high school for that is like arts-based right
0: i'm gonna say yeah it's home ec and then they they, all they did was cheer and and they were prom queen, and I think that isn't that what you're thinking?
1: Yeah, that's the stereotype we're, I'm driving at. Thank they, you.
0: They don't talk; that they giggle. I mean, I think that's what what we're thinking. And that's <laughs> <laughs> when you see how disciplined <laughs> it takes to, as far as athletically, how many years of dance it takes to become any cheerleader at that level. Right? It's a uh, it, it, it it's a full time job,
1: right? So I. I realized that the quickest way to dispel this was to go to, um, hiring websites and recruiting websites because they have to report what their education levels are to get hired after cheerleading. And it turns out, um, 75% of cheerleaders are, uh, bachelor's holders, meaning they have a bachelor's degree. Um, 10% have an associates, 2% have a master's, only 11% have a high school diploma. Um, So,
0: yeah, they're already we have people who do research for us and help us on the show. I think they're more educated than we are, Joe. A lot.
1: (laughs) Oh, just going off like the baseline, like degree holding and like how many years of school they have. They absolutely are like most like like pound for pound. A cheerleader would probably do a better job sitting in front of this microphone than I am. Just just strictly by how smart they are. (laughs) Um, And the, the most shocking part. Uh, if you are a retired or say like our opening narrative a cheerleader who has left cheerleading out of you know shame guilt or or combativeness um, what field do you think they go into
0: i would think you know probably cocktail waitresses bartenders
1: models instructors for like fitness yeah yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> at the gym yeah i could see that right that's yeah. a- i
1: i was thinking I mean, I, 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 this is not a, a joke. I really, actually, was thinking in stereotypes when I started this. Um, it's education. Sixty percent of cheerleaders,
0: sixty percent,
1: sixty percent, when they leave the cheer industry, uh, they go into uh, education industries. Um, That's crazy. Followed by nineteen percent of them going to hospitality. Followed by you know somewhere, something in the neighborhood of five percent of them go to nonprofits or media or a different profession. So. So, so many of them just returned to the world of education and some to hospitality. So uh, the the biggest thing for me is where does a a bad stereotype start? And so I was hoping you could help me with that part because I I don't have time to get into every narrative we have. How do we go from, you know, treating PhDs like they're bimbos on the field? Well, yeah.
0: the, the history of the what well, we talked about in the narrative in the opening. The history of when cow, when um, cheerleaders became sexy is when the Dallas Cowboys um, Tex sh- shram, He was a general manager. Scram, tech Scram, and he saw a burlesque performer in their audience, and she, this was kind of real, kind of corny, good old days where she was eating kind of ca- cotton candy, kind of sexy, and blowing kisses and he noticed the reaction from men cuz you know how men we are if we see a beautiful woman we act like we've <laughs> never seen a woman before we act like friggin', we're, like we act like idiots you know so he sees this and burlesque is kind of a line between a performer and a stripper it's kind of walking the line right right and he goes let's get all our girls in those imagine if we didn't just have one of those in the stands imagine if we had 15 of them on the field that's going to fill this place up So instead of this, it worked and it started this revolution.
1: Okay, so I'm I'm getting a mental image here. So he saw how all of the drunk football fans in these stands were dropping their popcorn and losing their shit over a dancer, a burlesque dancer walking amidst them. And then Tex like uh, this is a. This sounds like a this is, sounds like a stereotype. This sounds like a joke. So do name <laughs> text is like, yeah, let's turn all of our cheerleaders into that dancer.
0: Well, since we are a history, like, let me go back a little bit further. OK, Okay. Um, in the beginning, cheerleaders started in the Ivy Leagues. OK, and a lot of them were all it was, they were all male teams and they were called they were called yell leaders and rooter kings. You, you can see the guys with a big <laughs> megaphone, right? <laughs> Kicking their thing. <laughs> And that's how it was. So it wasn't a sexy thing. They were sweatered up and pants up, you know, and they would cheer and and try to get the crowd all worked up.
1: Just the title is the least sexy thing I've heard. Yell leaders. Okay.
0: (laughs) And then they went to women and then Bubbles Cash's burlesque dancer, who was a revolutionary. You know, she should go down in history and have some kind of a, you know, um, Tex Schramm had kind of a, he had a flair for marketing. He was a bit of a ahead of his time. He was called the PT Barnum of the NFL. So he he saw things that other people didn't, and he knew that sports football. This was 1967. This was a long time ago. NFL does it was not what it looks like today. It was not this big. It was a small business. It wasn't nearly as big as now. It owns its own day of the week. So, and just to give you an idea, you know, we're talking about a lot of these these. Um these women work for a hundred dollars a week, you know, three dollars an hour and work very probably harder than most people do at their regular job. They're working for franchises that are worth if you put the 32 franchises together, they're worth about 80 billion dollars and this is according to Forbes. The median player for a the median pay for a player in the NFL and it's all over the but the median, there's always an average which is a lot of numbers is eight sixty thousand dollars. So, there is a real sexist spin on this. Now, don't you think, Joe, okay, there's a lot of people that volunteer at the, at the stadium to work, right? They work for free just to be part of the team, to be closer to the players, to the energy. The, the police officers that work there make triple time. A lot of them make $100 an hour to watch a football game and to do their job, you know, keep people safe. Beer vendors get tips. They make three, $400 a game, Right. Right. Don't you think taking off your clothes should pay a little bit better? <laughs> Usually it does, doesn't it? Most jobs where you take off your clothes in the sex industry or anything, at least pay well.
1: Right. I think that's one of the biggest jokes of this, though, is that like people use it as an insult toward cheerleaders to say, go find a pole. You can dance somewhere else You know, when they want to berate them. But honestly, it would pay more. And also, they'd have more control over their livelihood and and their employment. <laughs> like it, it's, yeah, it's, it's no shade. It's just thinking about, you know, they are accepting a tremendously low amount of money to, you know, entertain people.
0: And I do think there's a lot of status in becoming a professional cheerleader. I do. I think when you grew up in cheer and dance, I think that is, I think that is, Um, you know, that, that would be our Ted talk, right? <laughs> right.
1: I'm not going to try to do the statistics on this, but how many hours do you think a cheerleader spends in the gym each week versus
0: a football player? Like, she's Equal. making
1: $3 an hour. He's making, you know, thousands I'll, of dollars.
0: I'll tell you what. Equal time in the gym, but three times as much time on their diet. The football players are careful what they eat. They have dietitians that are careful, but they can pretty much eat anything. They cannot. So there's, there's a part of this that is a real discipline is we're hungry all the time. That makes sense. And,
1: yeah, it does. And and being told you need to be calendar ready in quotes—that makes now, sense.
0: Now you talked about this one time, that um, that people think that people that write romance stuff are just like simpletons. Is that not true?
1: <laughs> I I used to think that. I mean, if if, if I crack a book, i I've, I mentally I have a hierarchy of how smart you have to be to write certain things. I certainly expect that if you are writing like a PhD doctorate on like um, you know uh, uh, anything in economy, it's got to be the hardest thing you could ever write. If you are writing like a difficult sci-fi, like you're you're Frank Herbert, or you're writing something about space, it's it's got to be right under that, and, and right at the bottom. Like you keep going going down this line, like you know below that is maybe you know historical science fiction and fantasy and George R. R. Martin, and you keep going lower and lower. And then at the very bottom, I used to imagine it was romance, like like at the very dumbest mark in the ladder of of writing. That's what I, I, think used
0: of, to... I think of that, like that cover with the guy holding the woman. Right. It's yeah. The, Fabio. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the junk. It's just garbage. Right. There's a million of them. Right. You could write you could write one an hour. Right. Right. Well, the the the
1: two phrases I've heard thrown around are they're called bodice rippers. When you when you describe a romance book, what's happening in that cover is the buff, wind in the hair, Fabio-looking character is about to rip off her bodice and ravish her. And I've also heard it called purple prose, uh, p r o s e e, as in like the words. And the idea is that you don't have to be smart to write that; you just have to like. It's the mental equivalent of taking, you know, a, a Barbie doll and a Ken doll, mashing them together, and then getting paid at the end of the day. Like out, and they they churn out so many. That's the other thing is they're you know, if you're, you know, steel or like, you know, one well, of these other big romance writers, you, you have, you know, 20 books a year coming out. So how, how hard could it be? With that so tone
0: of your voice, I'm guessing that there's a, there's a, there's <laughs> there's a, a shoe dropping. Did You, you learned something yeah. here. What did you learn?
1: Well, I started getting into, um, basically I, I, I started meeting and looking into people who wrote romance and this all started um, in 2012, 2014. Uh, Willamette Writers had an annual conference, and one of the um, guests there was uh, Diana Gabaldon. She's the one that wrote Outlander, which is very romance, very sexy. And she was talking to somebody on the radio. She she tells a story where like she's she's speaking to someone, and she's about to be on public radio. She's going to plug her book. You know, she's re- basically recording a commercial. And they're they're asking her. They're like, "What's your you know reason for writing this?" And she says, "Oh, the the thought of a guy, you know, a, a royal man being in a kilt, and they could have you in the, on the wall in zero seconds flat, or against the wall in zero seconds flat." She's like, "That was very appealing to me." And the the guy behind the microphone says, uh, "Ma'am, uh, you're on air right now, and this is public." And she's like, "Well, my answer still stands." <laughs> um, but I I, I thought. The way she spoke and the way, you know, she she talked about the concepts in her book and the the wording and how she she stood there and she did the most intelligent thing I've ever seen. She actually spoke a one page introduction for something. She made it up on the fly and then she edited it mentally. And I've rewatched the video of her doing this and she gets the words right. Like she sees the words in her head as if she is writing them and she corrects them. And she spends a couple of minutes editing mentally while we're watching. And you would have to have like an invisible chalkboard next to you to
0: keep track of what she's doing. This sounds like and, some real genius, high level Einstein-ish.
1: Oh, it, it absolutely is. And I, I later found out that she has a PhD in behavioral ecology and was the founding editor of Science Software Quarterly. And she gave up doing hyper-intelligent stuff to be a romance writer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's on par with the uh with the top percentage of the cheerleaders right
1: yeah and there's um I, i've also met and somebody probably who more is... educated
0: than most of the or probably more qualified than most successful writers
1: oh absolutely <laughs> in all, of all genres i i have i have now had the privilege mm-hmm. of meeting several very very intelligent romance writers and and smut writers and it's always shocking to me like like it's it's always weird that they give up some incredibly high, you know, academic society job to 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 go lower themselves to do something that is just fun. Like that's that's the answer I get the most often is why are they doing this? It's fun. Is it um, fun
0: and is is it fun and is it profitable?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um,
0: and that's why we work, right? Is to make money. That's great. And to entertain. I'm sure it is fun. I mean, it's more fun to talk about that than uh, thesis papers and right. <laughs> medical well, research.
1: Like Sex the cheerleaders, no. it's something that appeals to them. Like like doing it for prestige. You've got people doing it with you. It's fun. Your friends are there. It's, it's more entertaining than, than, like you said, trying to track the flow of kelp in the ocean. Like they're, they're enjoying themselves. Um, I, I remember. I do- yeah, go ahead.
0: Oh I think too I I think um as someone who you know our public speaking we, you get you get a lot of attention and you know
1: I, it, what didn't that shock you when you were going like the amount of people who held high degrees and very successful jobs who wanted to leave those to go be public speakers because it was exciting
0: it is and then I you know with us we done speeches and we we always laugh at people that we mentor who <laughs>
1: they're like world class in their own field yeah
0: let's just face it they're a different social class than us and and far more educated (laughs) and and then when they look at us with stars in our eyes it's it's very flattering it really is you know
1: yeah it's um i tried to find an answer for this by the way uh I, i was like where's the crossover between intelligent people writing romance or just writers in general and i ended up on a english forum where writers were arguing with each other about this And my favorite quote to come out of this was that, you know, to write tolerable poetry requires great insight. To write tolerable prose takes practice. To write a tolerable master's thesis just requires money. (laughs) And that was from somebody named Blair on the forums. I thought that was great. (laughs) That's great. I asked you to uh, find and present um, who is the smartest cheerleader uh, on the field that you could locate. Because we want to go from like most of them hold a degree and most of them are very smart. But what's the what's the big one?
0: Well, I'm a, I am grew up in, in in rural Maine, so I'm a New England Patriots fan. And one of my the most intelligent football players that I've ever played is Tom Brady. And that's probably not debatable. But even the most intelligent coach in the history of the NFL, that's not debatable either. And I don't just mean he hired a rocket scientist as one of his defensive coordinators once. And he even went on about Coach Belichick, the coach of the New England Patriots. But that's not the smartest person on staff among the New Patriots. A cheerleader, Kelly Benin, 26. She danced for the Pats for two seasons, and while she was doing that, she was pursuing a doctorate in cognitive neuroscience, and she was also teaching psychology to undergrads. And she was doing this at um, she was, she also had degrees in psychology and in Spanish, so she's bilingual too from Middlebury College. And she got her master's in education from Harvard. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. So, so then they ask her, they say, why would you want to be a cheerleader? And she says, I do it because I love the girls. I love the team energy. They're my best friends. It releases a lot of stress. And I get the best workout I'm ever going to get. She says, I don't go to the gym. I go to the stadium.
1: That is a cool answer. That is also funny to think that like the inevitability of there were horny guys in the stands like yelling at her or, or, or making lewd gestures. And she can explain to them in Spanish what's wrong with their their neurology, with their head.
0: Exactly. And then so there's the big thing is the why. Why do you do that? You have this much going on. You're obviously an overachiever. You're obviously, you know, we all have different reasons for doing that. And she gets asked that a lot, you know. But I, I think what. You know she has a reason she does it. But the other thing that I really like is um, they asked her what how people react when they when they ask about what she, what else she does. So I you know I don't like to be snarky or, or wow people, but wouldn't it be fun when they're looking at you like you're just a pretty face and you could tell them you're getting a PhD in neuroscience. Right. And then all of a sudden they go from feeling superior to you to feeling like a dum dum. That's got to be kind of fun, because they are shocked to their core. Right? <laughs> you know, they didn't expect her to say that. <laughs> but I think that's pretty cool. She says they're shocked. She's shocked when they tell them, <laughs> like, like they're gonna faint, shocked.
1: I I like that for her so much. And I would, if I were her, I would take fake calls. Like I would be in front of people and just answer the phone and, and pretend like somebody's on the other line and be like, "Oh, you need me to diagnose your uh, amygdala?" Like, <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I,
1: I, I, I have a suspicion now about you, Todd. I, I think that this episode, when you started talking about it, I think this stems from you told me that everybody has something very interesting to tell you when you meet them and you just got to sort of like dig it out of them. You put it in better terms than that. I, I make it sound like you're trying to mine people for information. but,
0: no, but my, my saying is everybody everybody in the world either has a best-selling book in them about something they've accomplished or something they've survived. But getting people's interest out of them, you, you do got to dig and ask a lot of questions. They, they don't just offer it up. <laughs> I
1: kind of decided to apply this same um, equation to other quote unquote, bimbo uh, jobs and things that people would normally consider um, looks based or, or appearance based uh, occupations. And I want to find out how many of them are degree holders or what what do they have to do to, to get where they are? Like what what brainy, you know, what super minds are hiding uh, amongst the ranks of models and, and people like that. So I wanted to start with the models, if that's OK. Like I, I want to start with the Zoolander myth are really 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 exceptionally good looking people dumb um now you and i have had episodes in the past where we have talked about that there there is a suspected correlation between looking attractive and having slightly higher iq um the thought behind that so far and this is sort of like i i i I will someday delve very deeply into this but the idea is it may be that you know um Natalie Portman is hyper intelligent because she's attractive. It might be that if you have a good set of genetics and you have never had anything in your life that impacted your health enough to like, you you never went malnourished. You never had mm-hmm. a major health problem that, that yeah. damaged your skin or, or took away calcium from your bones or something. Well, that, the that, idea.
0: That, yeah, I think, a, a yes. And the good diet, good rest. Um, yes. Just, just, uh, I'm going to say a little bit, well, there's not the childhood neglect, you know, yeah. or adult neglect.
1: Well, there there is a London School of Economics paper and theory that there are open arguments about. I'm not going to quote their studies yet, and I'm going to hold out to look into it a little bit more. Um, but they have started reporting a correlation between attractiveness and IQ. The idea is that exceptionally attractive models that they were looking at they usually had about 10 to 15 points higher on average iq um and that doesn't go across the board for everybody and everything and it's still sort of i I mean like i was reading through the comment section and it's weird to read through a comment section and see articles or or arguments and the arguments are from scientists that you know and recognize from other studies (laughs) like like this is this is yes. a, a locker room slap fight behind the scenes between very, very smart scientists.
0: <laughs> and that, they're, that they're genuinely interested in this too, right?
1: Yeah, they, they want to know if it's true, if attractive people are, are uh, somewhat smarter on average. So it's possible. I do know, though, from uh, applying the same Zipia statistics, like looking at Zippia, seeing what their degrees are, fashion models, uh, by and large, 77% of them hold degrees. Um whether that's
0: that's a a high percentage. Yeah.
1: That includes bachelors, PhDs, and associates, which are the smaller of the three numbers. Um so yeah, the the if you go to another industry, like if you go into a trade or something, you're less likely to find a degree holder than if you go to a fashion model, which is fun to think about. Um flight attendant was more shocking to me. Um I just thought flight attendants had to memorize all of the safety card that they show you the boring one where they hold up, like everybody look in the front of your seat, yeah. to pull out the safety card. And then that they seem they... like
0: a GD high school graduate kind of job. And I, I, that's what I thought the people I've known. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Literally. I, I thought it was just, you do that because it pays well and you don't have to have a degree. And I also assumed that the training, that was it. The, the, the training consisted of, here's how you roll a food cart down the aisles without smashing people's elbows into splinters. And here's how to tell people to buckle in and use an oxygen mask. Um, neither of those are true. The, the madmen era flirt with the flight attendant. They're all dummies anyway. Totally not true. Uh, 80% or more are uh, associate degree holders or higher. And to become a flight attendant requires almost 200 hours of study and training Including exams, written and verbal, as well as first aid and emergency training of basically every kind. And I realized while I was reading through their training list, when I was in security, I had to basically know how to respond to almost any um, type of emergency because of the level of security I was in. Uh, reading through this, I'm like, oh, oh, they did better than me. Like, like a flight attendant would make a better, like a, anything I did at my job, they could have done very easily. So. Um,
0: you know, this is starting to get to me now a little bit. Can I tell you something? Can I share <laughs> yeah. something with you? This kind of falls into the, you know, and we have talked about this as, as using intelligence as your shield socially, right? This is starting to make me feel like these motherfuckers are good at everything. Not only are they good looking, but they're actually smarter than me too. yeah if you've not, you know there's different kinds of educations but at least this is one we can measure anybody can say they got a street education how do you measure that right
1: (laughs) right well i've kind of started rationalizing this after looking at all this because everybody on our bimbo list they make really good money they they make more money than i do and it it makes me think okay these are professions that aren't upheld as the brainiest and they don't come with any prestige really But I mean, like fashion model, obviously that comes with like physical prestige and, and, you know, you get your photo taken, but it's not like anyone's going to publish their articles. So I was rationalizing that these are bimbo professions when honestly, they just are well paid professions that require a shocking amount of intelligence to do. And nobody really seems to know that. (laughs) Um, This one, I actually think you could have busted for me. I don't think I need to look up fitness instructor. Yeah. I think that I just don't give them enough credit because, um, I've only ever seen one in my life. And I, I, um, I called no. in a bomb scare to get out of having to see
0: him again. Yeah. They're physical therapists for all pretenses. Pro- I used to go to this I used to travel a lot for my old job when I had a corporate job and I used to go down to, um la jolla california which is outside of san diego and i'd go to this private gym and they used to have signs up for the fitness instructors and they all had kinsology degrees from usc and ucla they all had perfect bodies they looked like models and i thought okay and you could see how smart they were they knew what they were doing you don't get a body like that by being a dummy and you don't train people like that without knowing how every ligament every cell in your body works and that goes you know one of my good friends was was a trainer at LA Fitness, which is, you know, a McDonald's, a gym. And he had a degree from Portland State, and he knew way more. You know, i go to him for medical advice before a lot of doctors. I mean, he knew a lot about health.
1: That is the part that shocked me, is how many of them have health degrees specifically. Um, 70% of them hold bachelor's or master's. 15% hold associates, and they are certified – nationally usually and they have to clock continued education hours or they have to go through a recertification test
0: and they look great they're gorgeous (laughs) they have great bodies there's something to be said for that
1: (laughs) i i shit you not i actually thought that was their only qualification like when i used to go 24-hour fitness
0: i thought they had only gotten
1: the job because they were like they knew how to use the equipment and they look good and i i figured that that's, you know, you stay there too long, you stay in the gym too long, they'll eventually put a trainer shirt on you and just have you start training <laughs> people. Uh,
0: at least he finally admitted he's wrong. You haven't said you're wrong for three years. Finally, finally. Uh, well, some, some humility from you, a, a, a hint of humility from Joe. I'm going to edit that out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, do we want to talk about the. Most historically uh, categorized as bimbo but secretly brilliant people that have graced film and television and, and history?
0: I do have one. Hetty Lamar, And this woman was in a lot of spy movies and thrillers. Drop-dead gorgeous. I mean, Elizabeth Taylor, gorgeous. Um, but she turned out she was born uh, – she was also a scientist. And I want to talk to her a little about – she was born in 1914 – and she was an Australian-American actress. And her dad was a very uh, a very well-to-do. He was a bank director, but he was a really, really curious man. And he, at a time when um, daughters daughters weren't given as much education as young men, he would take her for long walks and talk to her about engineering and how things worked. And he always talked to her, even when she was five years old, like she was an adult. And so he instilled a a curiosity in her. So not only was she beautiful and talented, but she had an interest that was given to her by her dad at a very young age. She became a very successful actress. Um, She actually ended up hooking up and dating Howard Hughes. You know great Howard Hughes, right? A weirdo. He's weirder than you. Oh, wow. Yeah, the test pilot. Now, while hanging out with him, she um she bought a book about fish and a book about birds, and she found the the breed of the fish and the bird that was the fastest, and she combined what they had their their gills their wings, and she designed a plane for Howard Hughes. And Howard Hughes was blown away, and he used her design, and he said to make a faster plane. No so way! She designed, she designed it from nature. Yeah. Now she she came in right during the World War. And she partnered up with another person who was an actual scientist, and they figured out how to um, to intercept. Um, it's called frequency hopping. They, thought, they had they knew how to intercept radio waves, and so she was helped the navy out in helping save lives, and uh, um, and and to get the enemy, you know, Germany during the World War. So she is credited with. Um, today's being the founder of Wi-Fi and GPS and Bluetooth. So Hedy Lamar, an actress.
1: <laughs> when you when you talk about her father having a rule where he doesn't, he speaks to her like an adult and, and he feeds her curiosity. This also shockingly reminds me of uh, William Sidus because we have a book chapter about him and we, we wanted to f- carve out the rules that like makes a genius. And that sounds so close to it. <laughs>
0: It does. And William was you know, he had an IQ a hundred points higher than um, Albert Einstein. And it's a tragic story. You'll read it in in our book. Um, But, yeah, it's the same thing. And they they said there was no baby talk. She was talked to and he was talked to just like he was, like an adult from a very young age. Now, she lived a great life. I mean, I mean, she she, she was a movie star. She was a war hero. Uh, She dated billionaires, you know. Um, She died in 2000, but she was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame, and that's how she got. And they call her the mother of Wi-Fi and other wireless stuff like like GPS and Bluetooth. Isn't that crazy? I think it's great that it was a woman. It was a gorgeous woman who was an actress.
1: I She looked like such a femme fatale because she was in so many spy movies. I want it to be like every time you connect to Wi-Fi her face is just like flashes up and like just, just giving you permission silently to use her, her internet and then it goes away again. That's the signal we should all have.
0: There's nothing more attractive than a gorgeous genius. <laughs> I would say amen to that. You've been listening to The Re-Engineered You. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You mean the world to us. We have a new episode every week. You
1: can connect with us at www.re engineeredu.com. That's where we have research links, show notes, feedback, and blog articles for each of our episodes.
0: We're not experts in anything, but we've got an opinion on everything.